Chapter 5, Part 2 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 5, Part 2. We have thus represented, with remarkable fidelity and spirit, the several processes employed to place these colossi where they still stand, from the transport down the river of the rough block to the final removal of the sculptured figure to the palace. From these bas-reliefs we find that the Assyrians were well acquainted with the lever and the roller, and that they ingeniously made use of the former by carrying with them wedges of different dimensions and probably of wood to vary the height of the fulcrum. When moving the winged bulls and lions, now in the British Museum, from the ruins to the banks of the Tigris, I used almost the same means. The Assyrians, like the Egyptians, had made considerable progress in rope twisting, an art now only known in its rudest state in the same part of the East. The cables appear to be of great length and thickness, and ropes of various dimensions are represented in the sculptures. On comparing representations of similar works among the Egyptians, it will be found that they succeeded in removing masses of stone far exceeding in weight any sculpture which has yet been discovered in Assyria. Yet it is a singular fact that whilst the quarries of Egypt bear witness of themselves to the stupendous nature of the works of the ancient inhabitants of the country, and still show on their sides engraved records of those who made them, no traces whatever, notwithstanding the most careful research, have yet been found to indicate from whence the builders of the Assyrian palaces obtained their large slabs of alabaster. That they were in the immediate neighbourhood of Nineveh, there's scarcely any reason to doubt, as strata of this material, easily accessible, abound, not only in the hills but in the plains. This very abundance may have rendered any particular quarry unnecessary, and blocks were probably taken as required from convenient spots, which have since been covered by the soil. There can be no doubt, as will hereafter be shown, that the king represented as superintending the building of the mounds and the placing of the colossal bulls is Sennacherib himself, and that the sculptures celebrate the building at Nineveh of the great palace and its adjacent temples, described in the inscriptions as the work of this monarch. Unfortunately, only fragments of the epigraphs have been preserved. From them it would appear that the transport of more than one object was represented on the walls. Besides bulls and sphinxes in stone, are mentioned figures in some kind of wood, perhaps of olive, like the two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high, in the Temple of Solomon. Over the king superintending the removal of one of these colossi is the following short inscription, thus translated by Dr. Hinks. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the great figures of bulls, which in the land of Bilad were made for his royal palace at Nineveh, he transported thither. 
The land of Bilad, mentioned in these inscriptions, appears to have been a district in the immediate vicinity of Nineveh, and probably on the Tigris, as these great masses of stone would have been quarried near the river for the greater convenience of moving them to the palace. The district of Bilad may indeed have been that in which the city itself stood. Over the representation of the building of the mound there were two epigraphs, both precisely similar, but both unfortunately much mutilated. As far as they can be restored, they have thus been interpreted by Dr. Hinks. Sennacherib, King of Assyria. Hewn stones, which, as the gods willed, were found in the land of Bilad, for the walls, or foundations, the word reads Shibri, of my palace, I caused the inhabitants of foreign countries and the people of the forests, Kershani, the great bulls for the gates of my palace to drag or bring. If this inscription be rightly rendered, we have direct evidence that captives from foreign countries were employed in the great public works undertaken by the Assyrian kings, as we were led to infer from the variety of costume represented in the bas-reliefs and from the fetters on the legs of some of the workmen. The Jews themselves, after their captivity, may have been thus condemned to labour, as their forefathers had been in Egypt, in erecting the monuments of their conquerors, and we may perhaps recognise them amongst the builders portrayed in the sculptures. From the long gallery we have unfortunately only three fragments of inscriptions without the sculptured representations of the events recorded. The most perfect is interesting on more than one account. According to Dr. Hinks, it's to be translated, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, some object, the nature not ascertained, of wood which from the Tigris I caused to be brought up, or through, the carry, or kasri, on sledges, or boats, I caused to be carried, or to mount. The name of the river in this inscription very nearly resembles that of the small stream which sweeps round the foot of the great mound of Kuyangjik. In the fragment of another epigraph, we have mention of some objects also of wood, brought from Mount Lebanon and taken up to the top of the mound from the Tigris. These may have been beams of cedar, which it will be hereafter seen were extensively used in the Assyrian palaces. It is highly interesting thus to find the inhabitants of Nineveh fetching their rare and precious woods from the same spots that King Solomon had brought the choicest woodwork of the Temple of the Lord and of his own palaces. On a third fragment, similar objects are described as coming from or up the same carry or kasri. I have mentioned that the long gallery containing the bas-relief representing the moving of the great stone led out of a chamber whose walls had been completely uncovered. The sculptures upon them were partly preserved and recorded the conquest of a city standing on a broad river in the midst of mountains and forests. The last bas-relief of the series represented the king seated within a fortified camp on a throne of elaborate workmanship and having beneath his feet a footstool of equally elegant form.
He was receiving the captives who wore long robes falling to their ankles. Unfortunately, no inscription remained by which we might identify the conquered nation. It will be remembered that excavations had been resumed in a lofty mound in the northwest line of walls, forming the enclosure round Kuyanjik. It was apparently the remains of a gate leading into this quarter of the city and part of a building, with fragments of two colossal winged figures had already been discovered in it. By the end of November the whole had been explored and the results were of considerable interest. As the mound rises nearly 50 feet over the plain, we were obliged to tunnel along the walls of the building within it, through a compact mass of rubbish consisting almost entirely of loose bricks. Following the rows of low limestone slabs from the south side of the mound, and passing through two halls or chambers, we came at length to the opposite entrance. This gateway, facing the open country, was formed by a pair of majestic human-headed bulls, fourteen feet in length, still entire, though cracked and injured by fire. They were similar in form to those of Korsabad and Kuyanjik, wearing the lofty headdress, richly ornamented with rosettes and edged with a fringe of feathers peculiar to that period. Their faces were in full, and the relief was high and bold. More knowledge of art was shown in the outline of the limbs and in the delineation of the muscles than in any sculpture I have seen of this period. The naked leg and foot were designed with a spirit and truthfulness worthy of a Greek artist. It is, however, remarkable that the four figures were unfinished, none of the details having been put in, and parts being but roughly outlined. The sculptors to the left, on entering from the open country, were in a far more unfinished state than those on the opposite side. The hair and beard were but roughly marked out, square bosses being left for carving the elaborate curls. The horned cap of the human-headed bull was as yet unornamented, and the wings merely outlined. The limbs and features were hard and angular, still requiring to be rounded off, and to have expression given to them by the finishing touch of the artist. The other two figures were more perfect. No inscription had yet been carved on either sculpture. The entrance formed by these colossal bulls was fourteen feet and a quarter wide. It was paved with large slabs of limestone, still bearing the marks of chariot wheels. The sculptures were buried in a mass of brick and earth, mingled with charcoal and charred wood for the gates of the land had been set wide open unto the enemy, and the fire had devoured the bars. They were lighted from above by a deep shaft sunk from the top of the mound. It would be difficult to describe the effect produced, or the reflections suggested by these solemn and majestic figures, dimly visible amidst the gloom, when after winding through the dark underground passages, you suddenly came into their presence. Between them, Sennacherib and his hosts had gone forth in all their might and glory to the conquest of distant lands, and had returned rich with spoil and captives, 
amongst whom may have been the handmaidens and wealth of Israel. Through them, too, the Assyrian monarch had entered his capital in shame, after his last and fatal defeat. Then the lofty walls, now but long lines of low, wave-like mounds, had stretched far to the right and to the left, a basement of stone supporting a curtain of solid brick masonry, crowned with battlements and studded with frowning towers. Behind the colossal figures and between the outer and inner face of the gateway were two chambers nearly 70 feet in length by 23 in breadth. Of that part of the entrance which was within the walls, only the fragments of winged figures discovered during my previous researches now remained. The whole entrance thus consisted of two distinct chambers and three gateways, two formed by human-headed bulls, and a third between them simply panelled with low limestone slabs like the chambers. Its original height, including the tower, must have been full 100 feet. Most of the baked bricks found amongst the rubbish bore the name of Sennacherib, the builder of the palace of Kuyanjik. A similar gateway, but without any remains of sculptured figures, and panelled with plain alabaster slabs, was subsequently discovered in the inner line of walls, forming the eastern side of the quadrangle, where the road to Barshika and Barzani leaves the ruins. At Nimrod, discoveries of very considerable importance were made in the high conical mound at the northwest corner. Desirous of fully exploring that remarkable ruin, I had employed nearly all the workmen in opening a tunnel into its western base. After penetrating for no less than 84 feet through a compact mass of rubbish, composed of loose gravel, earth, burnt bricks and fragments of stone, the excavators came to a wall of solid stone masonry. I have already observed that the edifice covered by this high mound was originally built upon the natural rock, a bank of hard conglomerate rising about 15 feet above the plain and washed in days of yore by the waters of the Tigris. Our tunnel was carried for 34 feet on a level with this rock, which appears to have been covered by a kind of flooring of sun-dried bricks, probably once forming a platform in front of the building. It was buried to the distance of 30 feet from the wall by baked bricks, broken and entire, and by fragments of stone, remains of the superstructure once resting upon the basement of still-existing stone masonry. This mass of rubbish was about 30 feet high, and in it were found bones, apparently human, and a yellow earthen jar, rudely coloured with simple black designs. The rest of this part of the mound consisted of earth, through which ran two thin lines of extraneous deposit, one of pebbles, the other of fragments of brick and pottery. I am totally at a loss to account for their formation. I ordered tunnels to be carried along the basement wall in both directions, hoping to reach some doorway or entrance, but it was found to consist of solid masonry, extending nearly the whole length of the mound. 
its height was exactly 20 feet, which, singularly enough, coincides with that assigned by Xenophon to the stone basement of the wall of the city, Larissa. The stones in this structure were carefully fitted together, though not united with mortar, unless the earth which filled the crevices was the remains of mud, used as it still is in the country as a cement. They were beveled with a slanting bevel, and in the face of the wall were eight recesses or false windows, four on each side of a square projecting block between gradines. The basement, of which this wall proved to be only one face, was not excavated on the northern and eastern side until a later period, but I'll describe all the discoveries connected with this singular building at once. The northern side was of the same height as, and resembled in its masonry, the western. It had a semicircular hollow projection in the centre, 16 feet in diameter, on the east side of which were two recesses, and on the west four, so that the two ends of the wall were not uniform. That part of the basement against which the great artificial mound or platform abutted, and which was consequently concealed by it, that is, the eastern and southern side, was of simple stone masonry without recesses or ornament. The upper part of the edifice, resting on the stone substructure, consisted of compact masonry of burnt bricks, which were mostly inscribed with the name of the founder of the centre palace, the obelisk king, the inscription being in many instances turned outward. It was thus evident that the high conical mound forming the northwest corner of the ruins of Nimrod was the remains of a square tower and not of a pyramid, as had previously been conjectured. The lower part, built of solid stone masonry, had withstood the wreck of ages, but the upper walls of burnt brick and the inner mass of sun-dried brick which they encased, falling outwards, and having been subsequently covered with earth and vegetation, the ruin had taken the pyramidal form that loose materials falling in this manner would naturally assume. It is very probable that this ruin represents the tomb of Sardanapalus, which according to the Greek geographers stood at the entrance of the city of Nineveh. It will hereafter be seen that it is not impossible the builder of the northwest palace of Nimrod was a king of that name, although it's doubtful whether he can be identified with the historical Sardanapalus. Subsequent discoveries proved that he must himself have raised the stone substructure, although his son, whose name is found upon the bricks, completed the building. It was, of course, natural to conjecture that some traces of the chamber in which the royal remains were deposited were to be found in the ruin, and I determined to examine it as fully as I was able. Having first ascertained the exact centre of the western stone basement, I there forced a passage through it. This was a work of some difficulty, as the wall was eight foot nine inches thick and strongly built of large rough stones. Having, however, accomplished this step, I carried a tunnel completely through the mound, at its very base, and on a level with the natural rock, until we reached the opposite basement wall at a distance of 150 feet. Nothing having been discovered by this cutting, 
I directed a second to be made at right angles to it, crossing it exactly in the centre and reaching from the northern to the southern basement, but without any discovery. The next cutting was made in the centre of the mound, on a line with the top of the stone basement wall, which was also the level of the platform of the northwest palace. The workmen soon came to a narrow gallery about a hundred feet long, twelve feet high and six feet broad, which was blocked up at the two ends without any entrance being left into it. It was vaulted with sun-dried bricks, a further proof of the use of the arch at a very early period, and the vault had, in one or two places, fallen in. No remains whatever were found in it, neither fragments of sculpture or inscription, nor any smaller relic. There were, however, undoubted traces of its having once been broken into on the western side by digging into the face of the mound after the edifice was in ruins, and consequently, therefore, long after the fall of the Assyrian Empire. The remains which it may have contained, probably the embalmed body of the king, with vessels of precious metals and other objects of value buried with it, had been carried off by those who had opened the tomb at some remote period in search of treasure. They must have had some clue to the precise position of the chamber, or how could they have dug into the mound exactly at the right spot? Had this depository of the dead escaped earlier violation, who can tell with what valuable and important relics of Assyrian art or Assyrian history it might have furnished us? I explored with feelings of great disappointment the empty chamber, and then opened other tunnels without further results in the upper parts of the mound. It was evident that the long gallery or chamber I've described was the place of deposit for the body of the king, if this were really his tomb. The tunnels and cuttings in other parts of the mound only exposed a compact and solid mass of sun-dried brick masonry. I much doubt, for many reasons, whether any sepulchre exists in the rock beneath the foundations of the tower, though of course it is not impossible that such may be the case. From the present state of the ruin, it's difficult to conjecture the exact original form and height of this edifice. There can be no doubt that it was a vast square tower, and it's not improbable that it may have terminated in a series of three or more gradines, like the obelisk of black marble from the centre palace, now in the British Museum. Like the palaces, too, it was probably painted on the outside with various mythic figures and devices, and its summit may have been crowned by an altar, on which the Assyrian king offered up his great sacrifices, or on which was fed the ever-burning sacred fire. But I will defer any further remarks upon this subject until I treat of the architecture of the Assyrians. As the ruin is 140 feet high, the building could scarcely have been much less than 200, whilst the immense mass of rubbish surrounding and covering the base shows that it might have been considerably more. During the two months in which the greater part of the discoveries described in this chapter were made, I was occupied almost entirely with the excavations, my time being spent between Nimrod and Kuyunjik. 
Wishing to visit Barsheka, Khorasabad, and other ruins at the foot of the range of low hills of the Gebel Maklub, I left Nimrod on the 26th of November with Hormuzd and the Bayraktar. Four hours' ride brought us to some small artificial mounds near the village of Luck, about three miles to the east of the high road to Mizul. Here we found a party of workmen excavating under one of the Christian superintendents. Nothing had been discovered except fragments of pottery and a few bricks bearing the name of the Kuyunjik king. As the ruins, from their size, did not promise other results, I sent the men back to Mizul. We reached Khorasabat after riding for nearly eight hours over a rich plain, capable of very high cultivation, though wanting in water, and still well stocked with villages, between which we startled large flocks of gazelles and bustards. I had sent one of my overseers there some days before to uncover the platform to the west of the principal edifice, a part of the building I was desirous of examining. Whilst clearing away the rubbish, he had discovered two bas-reliefs sculptured in black stone. They represented a hunting scene and were executed with much truth and spirit. They belonged to a small building, believed to be a temple, entirely constructed of black marble and attached to the palace. It stood upon a platform 165 feet in length and 100 in width raised about six feet above the level of the flooring of the chambers, and ascended from the main building by a flight of broad steps. This platform, or stylobate, is remarkable for a cornice in grey limestone carried around the four sides, one of the few remains of exterior decoration in Assyrian architecture with which we are acquainted. It is carefully built of separate stones, placed side by side, each forming part of the section of the cornice. Mr Ferguson observes, with reference to it, at first sight it seems almost purely Egyptian, but there are peculiarities in which it differs from any found in that country, especially in the curve being continued beyond the vertical tangent, and the consequent projection of the torus giving a second shadow. Whether the effect of this would be pleasant or not, in a cornice placed so high that we must look up to it, is not quite clear. But below the level of the eye, or slightly above it, the result must have been more pleasing than any form found in Egypt, and where sculpture is not added, might be used with effect anywhere. Many fragments of bas-reliefs in the same black marble Chiefly parts of winged figures had been uncovered, but this building has been more completely destroyed than any other part of the palace of Khorasabad, and there is scarcely enough rubbish even to cover the few remains of sculpture which are scattered over the platform. The sculptures in the palace itself had rapidly fallen to decay, and of those which had been left exposed to the air after Monsieur Botter's departure, Scarcely any traces remained. Since my former visit to Khorsabat, the French consul at Mizul had sold to Colonel Rawlinson the pair of colossal human-headed bulls and winged figures 
now in the Great Hall of the British Museum. They had stood in a propyleum, about 900 feet to the southeast of the palace, within the quadrangle, but not upon the artificial mound. In form, this small building appears to have been nearly the same as the gateway in the walls of Kuyanjik, and like it, was built of brick and panelled with low limestone slabs. From the number of enamelled bricks discovered in the ruins, it is probable that it was richly decorated in colour. Trenches had also been opened in one of the higher mounds in the line of walls and in the group of ruins at the southwest corner of the quadrangle, but no discoveries of any interest had been made. The centre of the quadrangle was now occupied by a fever-breeding marsh formed by the waters of the Kauza. We passed the night at Futhlia, a village built at the foot of the Gabal Maklub, about a mile and a half from Korsabad. Near Futhlia, and about two miles from the palace of Korsabad, is a lofty conical tell visible from Mosul and from most parts of the surrounding country. It is one of those isolated mounds so numerous in the plains of Assyria which do not appear to form part of any group of ruins and the nature of which I have been unable to determine. Its vicinity to Khorasabad led me to believe that it might have been connected with those remains and might have been raised over a tomb. By my directions, deep trenches were opened into its sides, but only fragments of pottery were discovered. From Futhlia, we rode across the plain to the large village of Bazani, chiefly inhabited by Yesidis. There we found Hussein Bey, Sheikh Nasr, and a large party of Kawals assembled at the house of one Abdurra Rahman Chelibi, a Muslim gentleman of Mosul, who had farmed the revenues of the place. Near Bazani are a group of artificial mounds of no great size. Having examined them and taken leave of the chiefs, I rode to the neighbouring village of Basheka, only separated from Bazani by a deep watercourse, dry except during the rains. Both stand at the very foot of the Ebel Maklub. Immediately behind them are craggy ravines worn by winter torrents. In these valleys are quarries of the kind of alabaster used in the Assyrian palaces, but I could find no remains to show that the Assyrians had obtained their great slabs from them, although they appear to be of ancient date. I have mentioned in my former work the Assyrian ruin near Basheka. It is a vast mound, little inferior in size to Nimrod, irregular in shape, uneven in level, and furrowed by deep ravines worn by the winter rains. Standing as it does near abundant quarries of the favourite sculpture material of the Assyrians, and resembling the platforms of Kuyanjik or Khorasabad, there was every probability that it contained the remains of an edifice like those ruins. There are a few low mounds scattered around it, but no distinct line of walls forming an enclosure. During the former excavations, only earthen jars and bricks inscribed with the name of the founder of the centre palace at Nimrod had been discovered. 
A party of Arabs and Tiari were now opening trenches and tunnels in various parts of the mound, under the superintendence of Yakub Rais of Ashitha. The workmen had uncovered, on the west side of the ruin near the surface, some large blocks of yellowish limestone, apparently forming a flight of steps. The only other antiquities of any interest found during the excavations were a few bricks bearing the name of the early Nimrod king and numerous fragments of earthenware. It is remarkable that no remains of more interest have been discovered in this mound, which must contain a monument of considerable size and antiquity. Although the trenches opened in it were numerous and deep, yet the ruin has not yet probably been sufficiently examined. It can scarcely be doubted that on the artificial platform, as on others of the same nature, stood a royal palace or some monument of equal importance. End of chapter 5